0: Good morning to everybody, or I should say good afternoon in uh, East Asia, so depending on where you're from, morning, evening, afternoon, welcome to this uh, e-dialogue, what future for small-scale farming? So on behalf of uh, the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, Foresight for Food, IFAD and APRA, thanks for joining us. My name's Ken Giller, I'm co-chair of SDSN's network on sustainable Africa and food systems and I'm one of your hosts today. Our network specifically focuses on SDG2 Zero Hunger and has a very strong interest in rural households and smallholder farmers. Jim.
1: Yeah, hi everybody and and welcome. I'm Jim Woodhill. I'm the lead of the Foresight for Food initiative based in Oxford. Uh, This initiative is working to strengthen foresight and scenario capacities for, for food systems
0: transformation. Ken. Yeah, so as a little background to the e-dialogue, we started in July with an opening session, which was followed by a a session on local perspectives in August. Today and tomorrow, we're unpacking challenges and opportunities faced by small-scale farmers in different regions of the world, and we've had organised then separate sessions for East Asia, South Asia, Latin America and Africa. And then tomorrow afternoon in our time, uh, evening yours in East Asia, I guess, we'll be having a synthesis session. Uh, We apologize to everybody for the fact that we've been rescheduling uh, sessions, but that's been a bit unavoidable, working offline, uh, trying to get together people from all across the world. So against this background of a wider discussion about transforming food systems in the world as a whole, we're trying to take a deeper look at future opportunities and constraints faced by small-scale farmers. We know that small-scale agriculture is critical to feeding the world, to tackling poverty and malnutrition, but small-scale farmers aren't all the same. They operate with so many different contexts, different sizes of land, access to markets, farms in very different environments, cultures. And we know that farming households have an increasingly diverse range of income sources to complement their farming. So in today's discussion, we hope to unpack some of this diversity in small-scale farming we want to explore the range of future strategies and policies that are needed to support different types of farming households in different contexts. And we hope that the e-dialogue will really encourage an ongoing and deeper debate about the future of small scale farming in changing food systems. So I'm gonna hand over now to Jim who's gonna moderate the session this morning. Great. Uh, Thanks
1: very much, Ken, and we're thrilled to have such a knowledgeable and experienced uh, panel with us with uh, some very diverse perspectives on what's happening across uh, East Asia. It will just be a very informal discussion. We're going to hear firstly from each of the panellists for uh, two to three minutes and then open up a discussion around the issues that that are raised. But as Ken has mentioned, we really want to focus on now, the role of smallholders in tackling poverty and good nutrition across the region. How important are they going to be into the future? How is that changing? How are food markets changing and what does that mean? Different opportunity constraints to smallholders. Um, what's, what's happening with uh, gender and youth issues across the region? Um, how are different households changing their income sources? Are we getting a much more diverse sort of household income or not? What does that mean? Uh, or uh, how we think about the role of smallholders in overall economic development. And then particularly, as Ken mentioned, trying to explore what all of this means for some policy directions. All of this, we're going to feed into uh, some thinking for the uh, IFAD Rural Development Report for next year, the Food Systems Summit, and also the Global uh, Food Security Conference later in the the year. Um, To save time, I'll ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves. I'll probably do it uh, clearer than I will. Um, and ask each of them to give us a two or three minute sort of introductory view on these perspectives and then we'll move on to the, the questions um as a bit of an experiment we'll be running a, a mural sticky note program in the background which people can add uh, more information into and i'll explain that in a, a little little while and i'll put the link in the in the panel so with that um fabrizio let me uh hand over to you for some if some of your thoughts i guess particularly from an ifad perspective on the future importance of uh, small-scale farming in the region.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Jim. So, um, uh, well, first, allow me to introduce myself, I'm Fabrizio Bresciani, the Regional Economist for the Asia-Pacific Division at uh, IFAD, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, just a uh, no, few uh, few thoughts that um, uh, occurred to me uh, while uh, reading just a few days ago, I went back to the uh, Rural Development Report that was um, published by IFAD in 2019. And the focus of that report was on uh, on rural youth. Well, no, in, in reading the, uh, the original chapter, chapter nine, you find really some striking uh, uh, numbers, right? Uh, so this, these are figures that have been uh, made possible by Matching uh, uh, data on uh, individuals, in particular uh, young uh, uh, people below 25, uh, with uh, uh, population density uh, in the area where they live. And so you get a picture of how the uh, youth is uh, distributed uh, in uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia across rural, semi rural, peri urban, and urban areas. So one interesting fact is okay we have about no 55 to 60 percent of the youth live in either rural or semi-rural areas in this region of the world. Um, but you know the uh, the the other interesting aspect is that 60 percent of the youth that live in rural areas actually spend time on their farms, and this you know gives a sense of a uh, of a rural of a farm population in in rural and semi-rural areas, which is a little bit contrary. To the image that one usually hears about of an aging farm population. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, the the, uh, the diversification of income sources. So while 35% of the youth who live in uh, rural areas actually earn an income from non-farm activities, this jumps quite quickly to 50% in semi-rural areas. So the kind of message one gets is that, you no, know, one can expect that as the transformation of rural and agricultural areas makes progress in this uh, part of the world, we will see uh, no, uh, young people moving quite quickly to new occupations. And precisely this could be one of the important channels through which the transformation of agriculture and the rural sector in Asia and Southeast Asia could actually contribute to the broader growth of the economy. And then a very uh, 10 seconds on a second uh, imp- uh, interesting data. You know, in just uh, 10 years, uh, the amount of farmland that, that is being leased in China uh, increased by uh, more than twofold. Uh, so that's quite interesting because in such a short amount of time, such a, such a, no, a rapid increase in the amount of uh, farmland that is being leased. It really gives a sensation to know something important is happening uh, in terms of the consolidation of uh, small farms in a uh, economy where the rural and agricultural sector is rapidly uh, transforming. Uh, I hope we will be able to uh, have a little bit of time to discuss uh, uh, these uh, uh, concepts uh, further in, uh, in uh, during this uh, event. Thanks.
1: Just a very quick follow-up question, for Fabrizio. I mean, if we go back to the uh, 2008 World Development Report on, on agriculture and argued how critical agriculture is to poverty alleviation, how important do you see small scale farming to tackling ongoing across the region or is it now such diversity in the economy that it's less important than it might have been in the past?
2: Well, the uh, things have changed quite a bit uh, since the, uh, you know, the old days in which, uh, uh, you know, at least when we're talking about uh, uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia, when we were talking about the importance of broad-based agricultural growth as a way to make a a substantive impact in terms of reduction of poverty in rural areas. Um, At that time, uh, the uh, broad-based agricultural growth was seen as important uh, because it was a way of uh, increasing the income uh, of uh, farmers. It was uh, was important in order to stimulate the consumption of uh, goods and services produced in rural areas and, and therefore, no, uh, it, was, uh, it was a sort of the dominant paradigm about uh, uh, the role of uh, agricultural growth in poverty reduction. Uh, since then, things have changed quite a lot uh, in this part of the world. Uh, agricultural uh, share in uh, GDP has come down quite a bit. It's now about, about 19, uh, 15 to 20 percent in, in most countries. It still absorbs uh, or employs a large uh, uh, share of the uh, um, total uh, labor force, um, but you know uh, the, the 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 contribution of agriculture to poverty reduction through the direct growth of agriculture per se is much more uh, limited nowadays. Agricultural growth continues to be an efficient way of uh, reducing poverty, but it ha- its effectiveness has diminished simply because the sector has gotten smaller. But at the same time, uh, commercialization of agriculture has become uh, much more pronounced. And uh, this means that basically uh, farmers are linked uh, to uh, other sectors of the economy much more of what they used to be uh, in the past. In fact, actually, now you can start thinking about a consolidated agribusiness uh, sector uh, of which uh, agriculture is sort of the core uh, part. Uh, this consolidated agribusiness sector is a huge employer of unskilled labor across the economy when it grows it really absorbs a lot of uh, employment among unskilled workers and supports you know the growth of uh, wages uh, for right. the, for these type of uh, workers
1: so right. thank you. for we will come we'll come back to a little bit more of this discussion but that's sort of that's landed a really good uh, starting starting position thank you okay thanks cheers um, Irish, um, let's, let's come to you and hear a bit of your perspective, which I think will also come to some of these issues around youth but also gender and, and, and the role of agriculture in, in tackling some forms of marginalisation across the region. Oh, you're, you're muted, uh, Irish.
3: Yes, thank you. So yeah, good morning and good afternoon to all. So I'm here um, representing AFA, an alliance of 22 national farmers organization in 16 countries with combined membership of around 13 million small scale women and men, family members, fishers, indigenous peoples, forest users, herders, and pastoralists. and. AFA members, as I have mentioned, belong to the 43% of East Asia population residing in rural areas, of which 48% of course are employed in the agriculture sector. So, as um, you have already um, said in uh, initially in even in the previous discussion, East Asia agriculture is dominated by small farms, and we know that smallholder family farmers have been sustaining societies and also have been conserving agrobiodiversity. And small farms have contributed to local food security and more so in the situation that we have now, the health crisis we are experiencing now and the associated lockdown measure. Um, We also know that there are uh, many arguments like uh, small scale agriculture or farms being more labor intensive rather than capital intensive and are more diverse um, I mean, I think that's the the strength. It's more diverse, and because it is, um, it uses um, family labor and uses more natural resources uh, locally. Then it's really contributing to to climate change uh, mitigation. And uh, yes, uh, you also mentioned in um, your in your briefing note that our food systems are changing dramatically, um, diets because of diet changes preferences and um and that we, we we and also um we are witnessing the penetration the change in food markets like penetration of um of uh, supermarkets of fast food so where is the place now for uh, smallholder uh, family farmers for for AFA, I think uh, because of the, the changing uh, food system, we are now um, focusing on organizing uh, smallholder farmers into cooperatives. And there is now an increasing attention and investment in consolidating uh, smallholder farmers to to be integrated into the changing uh, food, food systems and food markets in East Asia.
1: Lovely, thank you. Um, Irish, really, really interesting. What do you what do you the, the really biggest challenge that AfA faces in supporting its uh, constituency?
3: Uh, yep, yeah. Um, I think um we just we recently had our um, regional conference on sustaining um, small scale agriculture um, in in Asia Pacific, and one thing that uh, really came came out of that discussion is really um, consistent policies in uh, supporting the welfare of um, smallholder um, farmers, and especially women and youth. So, so yeah, it's, it's the um, commitment at the policy level that um, we have um, highlighted as one of the key barriers.
1: Okay, great. We'd like we would certainly like to come back to some of this policy discussion a bit later in the in the call. So, thank you, Irish. Uh, Graham, let me go over to you from uh, Grow Asia and hear a bit of your perspective on these issues.
4: Yeah. So, my name is Graham Graham Dixie. I'm the executive director of Grow Asia. Grow Asia is a multi-stakeholder partnership. We have six country partners um, around the region. Five hundred partners. They form Um, working groups so there's 46 working groups who are doing 50 projects and those working groups are coming from and the 500 partners come from all sectors from the business sector from the producer sector from the public sector from civil society and they they work together to work up projects which basically are focusing on raising the incomes of farmers and lowering their their um, their environmental footprint and then those are meshed together by a central secretariat um, which not only does the cross learnings across the region, but also does individual regional programs on COVID, on full army worm, on responsible investing. So that, that's essentially what we do. Um, Jim set us the target of cha- being challenging and thought provoking. So I think what he wanted mm-hmm. us to do was to rattle your cages a little bit. So I thought I would take a slightly different view, which is that uh, a little bit controversial that The the point I'm going to make is that if we focus exclusively on the smallholder farmer, it constrains our thinking and our possibilities that we need to take a broader view um, on what are the realities that are happening in the food system and doing it in that way and looking at the broader agroecosystems, we will not only improve um, rural poverty, which is two to four times what it is in the urban environment, but at the same time, raise the livings of farmers. And, And there is a sort of there's a bit of a myth around smallholder farmers that thinks this is something that everybody wants to be actually the surveys show that if you ask smallholder farmer does he want to be a smallholder farmer generally they say well a lot of them say no i think 67 percent of indian farmers said they didn't want. they would like to do something different i think in mozambique something like 47 said we want a job so that's not that's not created as being some sort of myth, ideal, it's not. It's a very tough piece of work. You have very little control over price, no control over price, not much control over uh, over weather or yield. So it's a tough, it's a tough job. Um, But we have a big advantage. And the big advantage is that the demand for food and food spending is going up quickly. Within the whole of the Asia, um, uh, Southeast Asia, China region, the spending on groceries is about $4 trillion a year. And it's going up at a compound growth rate of about six to six and a half percent. Essentially, what it means is that the spending on food will double over the next decade. That is a huge opportunity. Um, but it does mean that if we are going to be able to drive more income into the rural economy, and let's be very serious about this. The thing that changes lives, the thing that reduces rural poverty is increasing the cash flow into the rural economy. And the agricultural sector and the agribusiness sector is one of the few that can significantly increase that. And with that increasing demand, there is the real hope that a tremendous increase in cash can hit the rural economy. And it will not only impact on the lives of farmers, it will impact on the jobs surrounding that and it will create opportunities for for employment, all sorts of things. So that's what we need to do, but how are we gonna get there? We do need a farming sector which is younger, which is more technical, which is sharper, is more professional, um, and they probably need to have a larger land area because it's difficult to make a sensible livelihood. And if you want to keep young people on farms, they need two things. They need a sensible livelihood for them and their families, and they need the services that they want. They want the infrastructure, they want the education, they want the health, um, they want the internet. Um, so I think we should be focusing on that particular sector. And that if we paint a mental picture of what will farming look like in the in the future, if it's going to feed that urban demand, they not only need to be more professional in being able to deliver high quality food, food that's safe, but the whole of that supply chain needs to be significantly improved. And the thing that we never talk about you have to get the market servicing right. You can't just turn up with one chicken. You need to be able to have consistent quality. That's what the demand, and the demand is the thing that will really, really drive change. And mm-hmm. the, the final point that I just want to make is that actually when we really think about it, and we think about, and I'm talking here about the commercialization of the smallholder farmer, it is very often the things that will most impact and not the obvious things. It's not about how much fertiliser you apply to a mango tree. But maybe some other things. I mean, in the COVID conversations that we've been having, what has shown up is the weaknesses in the food supply chain, and one of the first one is first mile log um, connectivity. That the logistics of collecting product from farms is very high. In Indonesia, those initial chain truckers are charging 300% margin. So that there will be, if you can look at the technology that's coming out of the urban sector. There will be technologies emerging which will enable consolidation of loads, reducing the transaction costs. The next thing is mobile money. You know, farmers don't take credit cards, but we are moving to a less cash economy. Mobile money is one of the ways that you can pay a farmer digitally. And this is what agribusinesses want. They can convert it into cash with the local agents. But it also opens up the third area, which is digital marketing platforms. One of the key environments there is e-wallets. And what has happened out of COVID is there's been a tremendous flip in the demand and the need for digital marketing platforms. And then finally, underpinning all of that has got to be a stronger digital um, network. And yet we see that often in the Philippines, as a classic example, there are areas with very, very weak connections. And yet there is a thing called the um, the uh, universal access funds, which were funds set aside to be able to invest in rural digital infrastructure, which has hardly been touched. So I'm saying that actually there are a network of things which can increase the flow of r- rural money into the rural economy, improve its effectiveness, be much more in tune with the way that the food system is changing, and those will bring in new money. They will not only raise the income of farmers, but they will provide multiple jobs. And so we're expecting to see surrounding those farms, a network of, of farm service businesses, the guy who drives the tractor, the person who operates the drone, the person who organises um, labour gangs to harvest those mangas at labour's peaks.
1: So I'll leave it at that. Over. Okay. Great. Great. Thanks, Graham. So I think you're, you're painting a very clear story there about needing, if we want to tackle poverty and inequality, we need to be thinking about the, the benefits from the entire food system rather than just focusing back on, on farming it, itself. But that then potentially argues for quite some structural change in the way farming is functioning and linking into those food system opportunities. If I'm if I'm hearing you correctly,
4: brilliantly put. Yeah, I wish <laughs> I could have done it as succinctly as you did it.
1: <laughs> um, great, um, Marlene, um, over over to you. And uh, we had a very interesting discussion last night in uh, in leading into this. So. Um, very keen to hear some of your perspectives on this and i think particularly some of your thoughts on who perhaps is being left behind in this whole story and how do you tackle those that are perhaps being left behind i think you're on mute marlene
5: thank you jim and uh i uh, i'm marlene ramirez from asia direct a regional partnership network of rural development, NGOs and agri-agencies dedicated to empower farmers' organizations, rural people's organization by building capacities for service delivery, for engaging government to influence and to benefit from public programs and to build capacities for uh, managing viable businesses. And um, I think my, my what i wish to contribute at the start is uh, looking at how smallholders family farmers are responding to the challenges brought by the by the recent pandemic and the important role that smallholder uh, sector uh, is playing and uh, what is it that we could do together to uh, leverage on this uh, very important role that was highlighted by the pandemic. And but, as we all know, even before the pandemic came, the smallholders or family farmers are already grappling with a host of challenges. Uh, and these are the issues that are being looked into by the UN Decade of Family Farming on access to productive assets, uh, productivity system support, weak structures or farmers' organization, access to markets. Uh, recognition, uh, low investment on women and, youth and the disasters that uh, brought by climate change or political conflicts, and all these leading to food insecurity and rural poverty. Then the pandemic came, uh, highlighting new challenges, or I would say also highlighting the gaps in our work, uh, supply issues, uh, were affected due to restrictions on labor movement, logistical bottlenecks, falling market demand, which impacted on the financial liquidity of small businesses, and also linked to the capacity of uh, affected farmers to repay loans. But we look at this as, I would say, temporary setbacks, that well-organized farmers' organizations are able to overcome farmers' organizations who are able to engage governments to benefit from recovery, and social amelioration programs, uh, farmers groups able to negotiate with lending institutions to restructure their loans uh, and uh, able to reorient or re-strategize their uh, programming and able to look beyond the pandemic and start uh, eyeing or jumping up on opportunities. So from there, what we observe or what we saw is that Indeed, when we talk about rural resiliency, one of the important streams is that having strong local associations that are able to overcome uh, setbacks. Uh, But the critical issue here is that very few smallholder farmers are organized. And even those that are organized, uh, many have to transition into structures that will allow them to optimize opportunities uh, brought by the pandemic, the silver linings of the pandemic, and more importantly for us, that uh, being able to participate in the value chain regardless of your your size um, or whether you are organized at the moment or not, but there is an opportunity for you to be part of it. So we, we at least in the Philippines, for instance, For instance, we saw that uh, other sectors went down during the pandemic, but the agriculture sector uh, posted a small growth, at least three percent. So it's really one of that is like an opportunity that agriculture is a sector that has the potential of bouncing back. It's not as badly affected as by other sectors, and there are silver linings that we 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 should. Frame in favor of small-scale family farmers, uh, and uh, this pandemic uh, has has shown to us that, particularly for small-scale family farmers, uh, the the issue that was uh, that we faced the food and nutritional uh, insecurity uh, was it was the small-scale family farmers who who helped us uh, uh, respond to this issue. They were there on the ground. They have produce, and they even without even with the logistical constraints, uh, many of them uh, manage to bring their produce in the market and supply urban communities, city consumers, uh, including ourselves, with uh, nutritious and healthy food, because uh, that is what they do, and uh, and and not just for the market. We also. Saw so that uh, many of these smallholder farmers, in fact, in the rural areas, managed to feed their family. So the, that that the household food security was responded to, and that they were the ones who brought food to the cities. But um, I think the the important um, another gap that was uh, highlighted to us, as I mentioned earlier, is. The importance of this very strong producer and consumer relationship, urban market linkages, which we we have been talking about, we have been experimenting. We have we have a number of pilots, but we felt that uh, that we should have foreseen this pandemic and had a, a stronger uh, mechanisms, food hubs organized or managed by agri-cooperatives working with smallholders, because that is very clearly before us. Now we see the the prospects and the possibilities and we are excited with it. Uh, And of course, um, it also brought us that uh, need to reflect on the policies uh, that we have. And therefore the, the importance of engaging governments on policies that will ensure that the smallholder farmers, women and youth are not left behind, but in fact are able to overcome the challenges of disasters or pandemics, but also able to transition uh, effectively into more uh, sustainable and viable existence. So I think I'll stop here and uh, it's just to highlight the importance of having Uh, vibrant and strong uh, farmers organizations, agri-cooperatives that will help uh, them move from where they are now and uh, make full use of the opportunities that we see in the current context. Over to you, Jim.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Marlene. And I think this point about organization and, and building the capabilities of farmer organization was something that was also Um, brought up by Irish and I I think something that was really interesting when we were chatting earlier was your comment about the need for much more integrated policy which I think is something we can come back to in the in the next part of the the discussion so with that let me go over to you uh, Andrew and uh, to introduce yourself and give us your perspective on these issues I'm going to try and keep us sort of a little bit tighter in time so that we've got time for an ongoing discussion
6: okay Uh, no problem Well good afternoon everybody and uh, welcome from Singapore. Uh, Like Graham, I'm here in Singapore and uh, been here quite some time, 30 years now, so this is really home. Um, I'm Andrew Powell. I run a small company in Singapore that Paul Tang and I uh, founded in uh, 2005 called Asia Bio Business. We set up Asia Bio Business to try to make a difference have fun, as Paul and I always do, uh, and pay the bills. And we just just about do everything on that. And we certainly hope that we make a difference, but that's not up to us to make a decision on that. We work very much with our uh, feet on either side of the fence, both in the public sector and the private sector. We work with governments, USDA, Australian government, Irish government, we work with the multinationals uh, that you're all familiar with, both from the ag and the food uh, sector. And we also uh, uh, work with SMEs and uh, help them with their commercialization and mentor uh, uh, startups as well. Uh, I was, you know, coming later on in the, uh, the this sort of session, you, most of the things I wanted to talk about have already been uh, talked on. But I wanted to sort of touch base on this, the whole thing about COVID and how we need to really appreciate that this has impacted the smallholder farmers. It's it, it, the, the fact that industry has been not ag industry but industry and, and development in cities has been impacted will in fact impact the smallholder farmers as well because a lot of them derive income from this, uh, uh, the, the sector. With that slowed down around the region, we have to take on board that damage that is done to the uh, the families of the smallholder farmers and think about short term solutions. Um, In the long term, I think we also, or medium term perhaps, we need to also think about the changes that consumers have undergone in respect to, uh, as a result of COVID, and what they want. And what all the the studies are showing that the the consumers want a better connection with the, the produce that they eat, they want it to be safer, and they want to really know where it comes from. And we really need to ensure that the smallholder farmers are able to satisfy the needs of those consumers to, so that they can extract the most value from the things that they produce. Now, the other thing uh, that I wanted to talk about, which is in more than a medium to long-term, and also touches a bit on what uh, Graham was talking about, is that we really need to think about a whole of system approach to changing the agri-food ecosystem. One of the projects we're working on at the moment is a development of a center of excellence for smallholder farmers based here in Singapore. And it reflects the, the complexity of the challenge in that we have a multi-stakeholder group to address this uh, change that we need to have in the agri-food ecosystem. system. We have multinationals like Bayer, IFC, DFAD Australia Development Agency, Stockholm Environmental Institute, educational institutes like Murdoch and Circa, and a whole host of other groups who are really keen to partner with us to advance the agenda of ecosystem change for the betterment of the smallholder farmer community. So it's an interesting challenge, but it can't be handled by just one group. It really needs this um, multi-sectorial and multi-stakeholder approach. Now I'm a seed biologist and I I do think that technology has to play a role in the betterment of the smallholder farmers, hardly surprising there. But I'm not so naive to think that we don't really, we must also appreciate the change that the new technologies is impacting or bringing about for the smallholder farmers. We have to think about the social, social aspects of this change. Change brings about angst and concern in populations. And we really have to think about how we manage that concern. We need to ensure that there's trust in the things in, in, the, in our interactions with the smallholder farmers. We need to, um, they need to understand there are benefits. They need to understand there are control and the it, it whole thing must be fair. These are all things that, as a risk communicator, which I'm also am, need to be taken account of when you're communicating with people who have concerns about things. Farmers are just like us. We get worried about things. We need to address those issues as well. And, in Africa, I think we've already seen social science really contributing to the development of the smallholder farmers, and I think we really need to think about that as well, particularly in our region. Okay. I think Thank that's all I've got to say, really.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Very, very interesting work that you're doing with Paul as, as well, I know. So, um, Tran, let's um, come over to you. And I mean, you're somebody with a tremendous amount of uh, practical experience, and linking that to the policy policy world. So we're very interested to hear on your your perspective from your work in your country. So Tran, what's what's some of your views on this, and perhaps your reflections, particularly on the policy implications? Uh,
7: thank you very much. So good afternoon, Inano, everybody. Um, uh, uh, first, uh, may I introduce myself? My name's uh, Chen. So I'm the, the Director General of Institute of Policy and Strategy for Agriculture and very nice to uh, uh, to meet you there and very nice to meet some of my friends. there. I'm happy to, to see you. Uh, as you know that I, uh, in Vietnam, uh, the small farmers still play very important roles. Uh, with agriculture, says about now the 35% of uh, agriculture uh, uh, still working in labors. However, the agriculture GDP uh, contribute only for uh, 14% of GDP. Uh, based on the number, of the GDP the same agriculture is still reducing. However, you know the the farm size of Vietnam is very small. That's why the Vietnam now still have a, a, around a eight more than eight million farmers. Yeah, and um, need the income from agriculture also. Um, reduced in uh, for rural household according to vietnam households living standard survey the income from agriculture of the rural household is only 20 percent yeah so it means that the uh, now the non-farm is played a very important role yeah and under the you know under the COVID 19 uh, the vietnam now to looks to control very well even we passed the second wave of covid pandemic However, uh, you know the farmers and other country in Vietnam were the uh, impacted uh, differently. Uh, for example, the f- farmers with the necessary the food crop like rice uh, have very good, uh, uh, like a, how can I say, the positive impact. The price of rice increased. The price of some kind of vegetable increased. However, for the Farmer with the branded crop like coffee, uh, tea, uh, uh, rubbers, the price will reduce. So, according to our survey, uh, around 70% of the farmers were impacted. uh, In which um, there's the farmer who based uh, on the non-farm income who were impacted more seriously. The farmer that the income based on agriculture have less impacted. So it means that, uh, you know, the picture for farmers so differently based on the different activity. And related to policy, the government of uh, Vietnam, you know, um, uh, control very well up to now. uh, And uh, they also have provided different kinds of policy to support uh, uh, not only the small farmer, but for the uh, peoples especially the vulnerable people, the poor people, and the government of Vietnam uh, provide direct money for them. And uh, we also created some kinds of like a, a food uh, program for the poor farmers. And recently, uh, we also uh, changing the policy. Uh, we also support the enterprise. Uh, because uh, we support enterprise uh, because the enterprise creates employment for the Non-farms. Uh, uh, how can I say the the people who living in the rural area but work in the non-farm activity. As I mentioned with you, the eighty percent of the income from the non-farm activity. That's why the if the government can stimulate the operation of the enterprise, especially enterprise in the rural area, so it will create the employment for rural area and and by then it create the income for them. That's why the the policy, not only focus to support the food, the direct money for rural uh, people, but also to support the enterprise. So that is the key important thing. And uh, the second thing is that uh, uh, we, uh, the government very concerned on the, uh, uh, how can I say, uh, to support, to buying the uh, agriculture product from the farmers by uh, trying to uh, push the the spot and also to try to push in domestic markets. That is a very important policy because it's not like uh, uh, make the, uh, the supply chain die. It create the smoothly operation from the uh, farm to the consumer. That's why I'm really early with uh, Mr. Graham and also Mr. Andrews about the support the farmer through the through like a food system and also to estimate the value linkage. So I think this is the second point, the third policy. And uh, another policy is that now the government try to, uh, how can I say, redesign some like a uh, training program for farmers because uh, at the moment, you know, the, I agree with uh, um, uh, most of previous uh, uh, speaker when you mentioned about visitors. That's why the visitor now very important, but we farmers only trained by some kind of very traditional skill. That's why the here, the visitor online market is a very important. And um, that is uh, some kind of main policy response to, uh, uh, to, the, the, to for support the farmer under the COVID-19. And uh, according to the, our survey, the farmer also, they also have uh, some kind of response themselves. they they try to um, change the the way they sell their product. They're not like a a sell to trader. They try to connect with the uh, consumer through the online. And -hmm. and they try to uh, uh, contract with the logistic provider. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they do not meet directly, but uh, uh, their commodities seem like a transport, a transfer from the farm to consumer and uh, uh, so changing the, the way to buy input, uh, they seem uh, like uh, uh, keep producing, uh, not, uh, they do not suffer from interruption from the input driver. So I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the response in the policy from the governments. So yeah. thank you very much for your listening.
1: Thank, thank you, Todd. So really interesting to hear those views. And I think that comes back to the point that Graham was making about the importance of seeing this from a much broader sort of systems approach and the whole wider economic development opportunity. Yeah. What I'm going to do is just take a little break here and introduce um, a thing called Mural. Um, while I'm doing that, the panellists might like to think about um, what, how you would like to react to what you have heard from the others. I think there's two, uh, two particular questions I would like to put back to you is one is coming back to who's being left behind in this whole story and how do you address those that are being left behind? And the other one is what are some of the bigger structural changes that you think are needed to pick up these commercial opportunities? I mean, do farmers have to be at a much bigger size or can farmers mix small size with off farm income and still be viable commercial uh, farmers? So, you know, what are some of the bigger structural changes that are needed and how do you tackle those that are still being left behind? But before we come to that, let me share my screen. And I've just posted, um, again, this tool in the um, in the chat box for everybody. And here we go. Oh, um, Andrea, can you allow me to share my screen?
3: Just a second.
4: Yeah, it should be good.
1: Yep, should be good. All right. Uh, can you all see that? Ken? Yes. Yep. So um, what I'm sharing with everybody here is a uh, online program called Mural. I've shared you the link You can see that in this, um, Ken has already been adding some of the reflections and ideas we've heard from the panelists. What we'd like to do is to invite any of the um, audience to add in your thoughts. So you can go onto this alongside listening in um, Zoom and add ideas. If you scroll your mouse in, you can just scroll into whatever part of the diagram you like. You can then, sorry, I've just got to reduce my window a little bit, you can go up here to the top corner, you can click on, you can drag a sticky note, you can put it in here and you can just start typing whatever ideas you, you would like. We've broken this uh, overall mural up into the five questions that we we're asking, exploring what are some of the changes going on and what are some of the implications. Um, I won't go into detail here, but we'll, we're going to leave this live for a few days after this session we will summarize some of the discussion that we're having now in this and if any of the audience would like to add in your ideas into this as we're going over the next uh, half hour or so please please do so so just to uh, reiterate how you use this if you click your mouse and hold it you can move it around if you scroll your mouse you can go in and look at stuff in detail and to add an idea you go up in the corner click the sticky notes and drag a sticky note in and then you can start typing in it you can just scroll in to look at your sticky note in uh, in detail so please we encourage all of the uh, all of the audience to go in here and put in any thoughts or ideas that um you would really like to, add to this discussion and they'll be uh combined into the summary of uh, of what's emerging as a really interesting discussion so um Go to it, everybody. It's a little bit of an experiment we realise, but hopefully we're also introducing you to uh, a uh, interesting uh, online facilitation tool. So now I'm getting back to the thing. I need to stop sharing. Okay, so with with that, let me come back to the panelists. And let me come back to this first question. Who's being left behind? And what are the opportunities for tackling those who are being left behind? Marlene, perhaps I could could come to you first and then maybe back to Fruvizio. Okay.
5: Well, for us working with, uh, we call it rural people's organizations, but that's really mainly uh, Smallholder family farmers, uh, rural women, and youth, and of course, you have the indigenous peoples. Uh, and one be an important element for us to be in, not left behind is to seeing these communities organized at the local level, at the provincial level, at the national level, and even linked at the regional level, because these are. Uh, we believe that uh, a, a key element is of of uh, the development process is inclusivity. And unless they are they have this power of the collective, uh, they will always be disenfranchised. Oh, In the right. percent of farmers are actually organized, only ten percent, and that's a very small amount. So, and therefore. Um, that, that big demand for us, that call to invest in organizing, whether it's uh, in relation to an economic activity, commodity-based, geographic, uh, sectoral, uh, we would, uh, and it's a, it's a running agenda for us that there be an opportunity for communities to organize themselves. Mm-hmm. And in Southeast Asia, the legal framework for organizing is not uh, present in all countries or maybe not as well defined that allows farmers organizations to organize as cooperatives are already there. But it is, uh, there's that hope because at ASEAN level, there was this uh, mandate to a roadmap to organize, to strengthen agri cooperatives. And we believe that is an important mandate at the ASEAN level that can be used by farmers organizations who are still not in that structure that we believe will allow them to be able to play well in the marketplace or to be able to engage governments with the needed uh, power. Uh, so so that for us is a, and, and being organized also allow them to confidently, confidently engage with the other players in the market, including the private sector, including the big farmers organization and donors and government. Right. So um, that, right, that is you. for us an important element.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Marlene. I mean, let me just go to Fabrizio then. So, I mean, we're hearing the importance of organising those who are perhaps being left behind, but I mean, are there large groups that are going to have to leave agriculture as an opportunity for people to have a mixed space? I mean, there still are very, very large numbers of very, very small farmers across East Asia. Are they finding a way of having a mixed livelihood? I mean, from an IFAD perspective, now, where do you see the biggest groups in what sort of locations or what sort of characteristics that are being left behind? And, and what's your view of how you tackle that and where the opportunities may or might not be in this wider food systems change that we've been hearing about?
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I think, no, in terms of uh, those that are left behind, uh, we should uh, 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 draw attention to the um, no, Indigenous population, people that live in, uh, Indigenous people that live in remote uh, uh, rural areas often uh, characterized by low connectivity, difficult to reach, uh, and so forth. Uh, women uh, wh- whose access to productive resources is often hampered by social norms and, and sometimes a legal framework that is not uh, uh, helping them in uh, uh, achieving uh, no, their, uh, or being able to live an empowered life, let's say. And then youth. And youth, uh, again, is, uh, is a, an important group of uh, people that live in rural areas. As I mentioned initially, uh, they are active, they are ready to uh, jump into new opportunities. Uh, however, it's very difficult for them to access the finance, the, the land, and the technology that is needed you know, to oftentimes get started with their own uh, enterprises. In terms of uh, uh, who will be left in the, uh, in the rural sector, I think this is, uh, you know, um, uh, you need bigger farms in order to match the kind of uh, income that you can get from non-farm activities. Um, and uh, the professionalization of farmers uh, that is uh, essential and to which uh, uh, Graham also referred in his, uh, in his um, uh, contribution, Uh, I think requires that, uh, you know, we need to see uh, farmers being able to consolidate gradually their small farms. And that actually is a course of uh, development we should encourage, uh, rather than seeing uh, corporate farms uh, uh, taking the lead in this process of uh, land uh, consolidation. Um, This will make a difference in terms of uh, how rural development will look like in 10, 20 years from, from now. Um, now, this outflow of uh, uh, smallholders uh, from agriculture, for some of them is desirable. As Graham mentioned, many smallholders would rather do something different. We need to create the conditions for this exit to happen in a, in a way that uh, uh, promotes their uh, livelihoods and their living standards. Uh, for this, we need to set the right set of institutions as of now, because this process is going to last over the next uh, 10, 20 years. And so land policies will become uh, very important in uh, making sure that uh, the uh, uh, smallholders that are not competitive anymore can actually make the best use of their uh, land assets. Um, and also uh, to allow those that want to uh, no, make uh, uh, farming uh, their main uh, uh, livelihood, uh, then no, they can actually be uh, are able to access land in a secure uh, way, meaning that uh, the land they access is land in which they can actually make investments. Um, so I, w- I would definitely uh, draw attention to the importance of setting the right land institutions and land uh, uh, policies to prepare this longer process of uh, 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 structural transformation that is going to happen in this small older uh, sector.
1: Right. Thank, thank you, Fabrizio. I mean, Arish, could I, could I come to you? I mean, do you have a sense of where things sit across the region from a a policy perspective. So we've heard about a lot of the things that need to happen in terms of improving farm and networking and organization of getting uh, land consolidation approaches of providing access to finance. I mean, are, are policies across the region heading in the right direction or is there still a lot of work to be done to try and get a more enabling institutional and policy environment?
3: Yeah, thank you, Jim. Uh, before I respond to it, I just wanted to make a comment on the statements uh, made by Marlene and Fabrizo. Uh, Fabrizo, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a short statement. So um, I think um, I-, I wanted to reinforce what uh, what um, has been uh, said on the, you know, the uh, consolidation of the small farmers, rather than you know having. Um, Having uh, corporate farming, because it's interesting that uh, during the CFS event, uh, the uh, the uh, Twenty Thirty research actually um, have uh, three interesting findings, and one of which is that uh, they found out that if farmers um, belong to cooperatives or self help groups or uh, you know autonomous organizations, their income actually increases. Uh, because of uh, the shared network and resources. So, you know, that groundbreaking research um, reinforced what we have been uh, saying in AFA that um yeah, we we I think I want to, to use the word also coexistence. Um, there are arguments of corporate farming because of the the ongoing uh, landscape transformation, but we also know that uh, smallholder has has a role, you know, especially uh, those that I already mentioned earlier like um, in uh, carbon sequestration in uh, diversification in agrobiodiversity conversation. so these are you know big contribution that smallholder farmers um, have so going back to your um, to your question, uh, it's interesting that we had the sub-regional discussion on uh, priority policies. And as also mentioned earlier, it's still, you know, the priority is really still on land policies that are favorable to to smallholder farmers, to indigenous people, to pastoralists. And um um, the smallholders, I think, is grateful of the UN Decade of Family Farming because in the next ten years, we hope that policies favorable to supporting um, the land rights of smallholder farmers and uh, policies uh, that is supportive of co- co-op formation um, will actually, uh, you know, uh, we can realize that in the next uh, decade.
1: Right. Thank. Thank, thank you, Irish Graham. I mean, what opportunities do you see for making the sort of commercialisation more inclusive, and you know, what's going to to create opportunities for more people at the at the lower end of the economic pyramid, so to so to speak? Uh, uh, Mike Graham. <laughs> you, yeah, let's not waste <laughs> my
4: breath under the room.
1: Um, yeah, so
4: you know, all of that. So let me you know, I'm leaving people behind so that the, the, the basically the findings when you talk to people who try and link markets and farmers together, they will say actually, you know, the, the consensus view is you can't not all the farmers are suitable for joining in they're, they're not, they're not particularly farmers, they've got a bit of land, they feed themselves, but they're not really interested. So there is a portion of people who are just not in, in any way have the attitude or the, or the outlook to take on that particular role. Then there's the issue of transport and, and their distance from the market. There's quite a lot of evidence showing that actually incomes um, start diminishing pretty quickly after you start dropping off two hours away from a major market. This opened and we've seen again and again examples and one is in Laos just recently with a new railway line opening up which has opened up a whole new opportunity for farmers in that area. So actually, by building roads, by building transport connections to people that are distance from the market and bring them into market catchment area is one of the solutions. The other one is that um, as male population is moving increasingly into towns and other opportunities, we are going to have more women on farms. And, and m- mostly women, yields are lower, they don't get access to finance, they don't get so if we are going to create that cadre of, of more professional farmers, I think we really need to focus much more on, on the women side of that. And then there was that this question about, um, you know, how do you, can can big farmers and small farmers work together? The answer is definitely uh, uh, there was a there was a study looking at business successful agribusiness models coming out of Africa, and the consistent theme was it's not like they only work with smallholder farmers. They need to have a cadre of big farmers. To be able to lower the transaction costs, and they are a mix of those. The work done by Thomas Jane at the moment, um, which is the emergence of the medium-scale farm in in um, Africa, which is quite a phenomenon, quietly seen, but it's it's quite important that in the areas where there's a lot of those small those medium-scale farmers, the smaller-scale farmers in their area, there's a positive ripple effect. Their yields have gone up. They've taken up the technology, and there's an aggregation. So. Definitely, there has to be a link between um, the big farms and the small farms. And, and the, the final piece that I'll just say, you know, so much of what I talk about is what the market is demanding. And, and there's definitely a move. Staples is leveling off fruit, vegetables, consumption going up, processed products going up, and animal proteins. Most of those are um, much higher output products. Um, and they're labor intensive, which gives is one of the very few comparative advantages that a smallholder farmer has that his labor costs are lower than a corporate farm. So the labor intensity of farming um, gives a preferential um, comparative advantage to a small scale farm,
1: over. Right, thank you. Tran, um, what's your view on the sort of policy environment you think is needed to pick up some of these opportunities and perhaps tackle those that are being left behind? And your mic's on mute. Yeah, thank you very much. I
7: think uh, I um, um, mostly agree with the uh, previous speaker, especially from Irish. Because I think uh, with the small farmers in Vietnam now, we have different kinds of policy. However, I think that three kinds of policy to support for farmers is very important. The first one, because uh, they are very small. So it's very difficult for them to collect directly with the markets. And it's very difficult for them to sign the contract Directly with the enterprise. That's why the cooperatives uh, or the cooperation group is very important for them. That is that that is the the um, uh, the way that the Vietnam also try to push up. So it means that the first one, the policies should uh, develop the cooperative for the small farmers, yeah, or the cooperation group. So I think it's the first one, and the second one. Uh, is about the uh, value chain linkage uh, stimulation. Uh, in Vietnam, we also have a one degree uh, to support the value chain linkage from the farms to the markets. So in which if the farm have a side contract with the enterprise, they will get the support. And also we also have to sub- have a, like a, some special uh, policy, especially in the credit. Or the training uh, if the enterprise side contact with the cooperative or the small farmer that is the second thing and the third thing about the credit support uh, in Vietnam we have a one space uh, a separated uh, um, credit program for the farmer and rural household so in which the if the farm or the rural household if they have very good plan on business they can borrow money from the, uh, the bank. Uh, uh, and I think besides that, under the, um, the risky environment, I think one of the very important things for the small farmer is to uh, try to protect them from the different shock. If I remember in Vietnam, you know that the uh, live pig uh, producer will suffer, how can I say rich, um, seriously from the swan, uh, Africa swan fever. That is a terrible thing for, for them. Or the um, uh, pepper crop, uh, fruit, and vegetables, they also get a big, big suffer uh, from the disease. Uh, Besides that, the small farmer also uh, get the big suffer from the climate change impact. Even at the moment, all the farmers in the center of Vietnam were infected very badly because of the flood. Yeah. Uh, and um, I I think beside that, the farmers also have a risky from the uncertainty of the market. So I think they are very risky. So beside all the supporting uh, uh, producing uh, production or the marketing is it's very important to have one like mechanism to protect the farmer. So I think like uh, agricultural insurance is also very important thing. So that is I think there's some kinds of ours. Uh, 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 i think the uh, is very important that do to support the small small farmers and to make them like a, how
1: can i say have a inclusive role in the value chain so thank you very much all right thank thank you i think that that i guess that also brings us back into the the whole discussion around what sort of perhaps insurance mechanisms you need how you get maybe more effective social protection mechanisms that are linking into enabling that productivity in in a risky in a risky environment yeah, um, Andrew, where do you, where do you see the the main sort of policy directions going? And what we, if you had a chance to sort of tweak some some policy levers to to optimise what you see as a need, what would they be?
6: Uh, Mike, done. I, I think well, a lot of people have already kind of addressed the real need for. Uh, Policies that impact the smallholder farmers uh, uh, who and actually benefit themselves. I think we really need to enact some policies that uh, uh, empower the environment that we're working in. And you know, uh, one of the words that we've not heard in this discussion is this: uh, is sustainability. And you know, we're trying to uh, uh, change systems for the better, and we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. And these systems need to be sustainable. You know, uh, the, I think there's a lot of policies that need to be put in place to ensure that sustainable solutions uh, for the smallholder farmers are available. Uh, I talk with energy providers, off-the-grid energy providers, who are wanting to provide solutions to the smallholder farmers in the Philippines, and there's a number of hoops that they have to jump through to get energy solutions to these smallholder farmers. Is just incredible, and these are very creative solutions. They can empower whole island, little islands, with some wave power or or uh, uh, tidal streaming, and they can really uh, you know make a difference uh, by powering not just the farms but also small processing facilities. So we need to create this environment where the uh, policies support the infrastructure that will help the farmers themselves, not just not just on farm. Uh, uh, policies, but you know, supporting policies, the the non-agriculture policies, if you like.
1: Right, great. great, thank you, thank you, Andrew. I'm I'm watching time here. We're going to have to start uh, start wrapping up. I mean, obviously, this is a conversation we could take on for a whole day, and it would probably be much nicer to be doing it in all a room together over a cup of coffee, <laughs> rather than keeping to the constraints of a of people's attention span on on a Zoom call. But um, I mean, I think uh, you know, it's been really fascinating to hear the different perspectives. And I think there's a, there's a lot of coming together around how you put this whole challenge of small scale agriculture into the bigger sort of food systems perspective, which I guess is where we're heading towards with the, with the Food Systems Summit last year. But I think what I've also heard is you know, quite a lot of optimism around the opportunities, but also this need to get a much more sort of integrated thinking around a whole lot of, lot of different policy mechanisms coming together. So maybe that's the challenge for the future. But um, let me go around and just get uh, one very quick sort of final message from from each of you. And then I'll just hand over to Ken for some last wrap up comments. So um, Marlene, having heard all of this, what's your final big message you would like to leave the audience with? Uh, Mike? Yeah
5: on the I think on the policy side uh, I, I shared to you yesterday that uh, at the moment we are working with ASEAN on elevating the importance of rural development that brings together the key actors uh, beyond rural development is the poverty eradication and rural development and and central to this is the whole idea of of uh, strengthening the territorial, more integrated approaches. But key to this is the, the political will of government to support this kind of a comprehensive approach, uh, which is, uh, from the initial uh, scoping study that we are doing, does not really exist in most countries in the region. So. Uh, this is a, an important call for us, and um, and we hope that uh, working with ASEAN, we can work together to help them set that framework that could get the, the member states uh, uh, be inspired by how other countries are doing it, that uh, a rural development framing that puts centrality to the important role of uh, farmers' organization, agri-cooperatives, that that they could steer the economic development in certain uh, localities, whether it's at the village level or at the municipal or provincial level. There are models that exist in Europe uh, and many other countries, even in the Philippines, we have those uh, where agri-cooperatives are taking lead role in developing their, their villages and their barangays. Uh, and 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 if we are able to support this then this I, this concern for some sectors uh, communities being left behind uh, should that issue should be responded to because we are the, there's the, the approach is territorial and and uh, that brings in the the participation of the different sectors in that uh, community so I, I so that would be my
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> very,
5: very
1: here. I'm, I'm getting very caught here about desperately wanting to give all of you a lot more time to hear the fascinating thoughts you've got and needing to, to keep time. So let's, uh, let's move. Tran, do you have a, a final short key message that you would like to share with us from what you've heard the, this afternoon? Uh, and your mic. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh,
7: this discussion is very useful uh, at the moment, the government of Vietnam will organize uh, one of the very important meetings, we call the all the Donors International Meetings, and uh, uh, this is the annual meeting uh, that the government of Vietnam organized every year, and this year uh, the government topic uh, focuses on the agriculture in the context of the COVID uh, pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, so in which uh, we will try to Uh, Assess the different impact of COVID-19 on different uh, on agricultural sector in general, and also on the different stakeholders, including the enterprise, uh, cooperative sector, and especially the farmers. So I think this is a uh, very uh, good uh, conference for me to learn from all uh, the uh, different uh, speakers, especially. Uh, you say your experience and the policy response. Yeah, so however, because the, the sometimes the internet is disconnected, I cannot hear all uh, your opinions. So yeah. if possible, you can give, uh, maybe you can give us the, like a summarize uh, and after that you can say for all uh, the people. So based on that, I can take the, some like innovation idea so I can um, uh, add into my presentation, because in the, in the mid um, uh, meet, annual meeting, uh, I will propose some kind of the policy for the government. So I hope that I can uh, pick up some very interesting ideas from the other countries. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. We'll, defi- we'll definitely make the, the material available to you in a summarized form, and the videos will also be available. Uh, Fabrizio, a, a brief final reflection?
2: Yeah, think, Jim, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, let's, uh, one, one thing is about also the perspective. So the, the nice thing about uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia is that it's a dynamic region of the world. Now, of course, the COVID-19 uh, has been hitting hard. Uh, but no, looking forward, uh, I think we can expect uh, this uh, region of the world to resume its dynamism in terms of overall growth. This makes uh, the uh, issue of uh, lifting uh, living standards in rural areas much easier than in other areas of the world. Uh, so this is a very first uh, important point. Second, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that uh, Uh, Rural areas are populated by uh, households that have uh, different uh, endowments, different skills, different capacities, right? So the role of public policy is to make sure that rural households can make the best out of the assets that they have and also help them invest in assets. And by assets, I mean not only land, it's also uh, education, health and so forth, right? we need to be able to create an environment whereby households uh, that want to exit uh, uh, farming can do so in a way that uh, no lifts their living standards. They're not. They don't need to. They don't have to be pushed out. So it requires combining land policies, educational policies, uh, new farm policies, where the new farm policies need to give more flexibility to farmers regarding what they want to, to cultivate and how they can actually uh, get this to the market. And of course, consolidation through cooperatives and so forth is part of the equation. But it, it's that kind of uh, picture and optimism that I think we need to uh, always be uh, mindful when we think about the future of smallholder farming in uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia.
1: Right, thank you. Thank you, Fabrizio. Andrew, I'll go Andrew Graham and, and finish off with Irish.
6: All right, thank you, Jim. I am. I'm like Roberto. I'm really optimistic uh, and excited about uh, what's going on here in the region at the moment, and particularly excited with the number of young people who are getting involved in agriculture. I'm associated with three different accelerators, and the ideas and the energy that are coming out of those groups mm-hmm. from all around the region, from internationally. Some of some of these accelerators are in Singapore, others are uh, around the region. These people are really wanting to get involved and they're using some great new technology and ideas, uh, so mm. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, the, the, we must, though, like I said in my earlier comments, remember that we're working with people. We're working for people and with people, and they're just like us. They have uh, concerns and needs, and we need to take those on board. And uh, we can't ro- ride roughshod over their uh, sensibilities and concerns.
4: Thank you. Greg. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would divide it up into a sort of twin track approach. I think the, the, you know, I think you're, in your classification, you've had those that are hanging in. And clearly, we have a responsibility to make sure that the process of change doesn't hurt them and to make their lives as easy and as comfortable and, and reduce their disadvantages as you can. But the second track is, is this, this incredible change that's going on in the food systems and that we have to walk forward looking at the future and the the changes that are happening, and that this is not only will be creating a lot of opportunities and increasing the flow of cash into the rural economy if we can keep the farming sector competitive, but it also will generate a number of jobs into the rural space. And these are in the broader rural economy and some of them will be people who are providing services to that cadre of professional farmers, some of them will be the spillover income that will be generating as more cash goes into the rural economy, the hairdressers and the people who fix bicycles and so on. So, uh, you know, I like like Andrew, like uh, Fabrizio, yeah, I'm, I'm very confident about the future. And I love what Andrew said about this, this cadre of young people that are investing in, in the food space. And often they don't come from farming backgrounds, they come from finance, they come from technology, but they have the potential to transform and one of the things that they consistently say to us is, I do wish the regulatory burden wasn't quite as heavy on us. So we have to fill in the same forms as a multinational and their access to finance is a real problem. And I think we need to support them if we're going to create this more modern, more dynamic and
1: more economically powered rural economy. Over. Great. Right. Thank, thank you, Brian. And Iris, uh, some final reflections from you.
3: Yeah, just last um, two points. I think um, we have uh, heard a lot um, of thoughts on you know the, the empowerment of youth and also uh, women. So in Alpha, we are seeing now that more and more uh, women and youth um, are getting engaged in. Um, high value crops, of course, because they wanted to increase their income. And also they are more into uh, processing or value addition and marketing. And I think uh, it has been emphasized that they really need support so they can be integrated well in the uh, agri-food value chain. And we also know uh, that women in Asia has been contributing to food security. So in AFA, um, we are calling forth for policies that promote fair access to agriculture and natural resources and also to make markets safer for women farmers
1: lovely thank you well, look we're 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 a little bit over over time i've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion i think there's been a lot of fun I don't hello. Also, hello. also some really important hello,
7: hello. Uh, i just uh, have one oh. last uh, i'm sorry i have uh, only one Under the IFAT support, hello.
1: Yes, we're listening to you, Tran. Please go ahead. Uh,
7: Yeah, so under the IFAT support, uh, we did the uh, small, we called a quick assessment on the impact of COVID on the smallholders, uh, farmers, and vulnerable uh, rural households. So we we just finished that. So uh, if you need that, I can say with you. Um, did it also so the quite good report and we did the survey for 1100 small farmers so thank you oh, very much
1: thank you that, that that would be really 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 appreciated and we'll we'll post a link to that on the um it's the site for the e dialogue
7: yeah and if you have a uh, same uh, research on your country please stay with me because i'm really uh, as i mentioned, i really want to take experience from the you guys yeah thank you okay. very much
1: thank, thank, thank you very much so um, let me hand uh, back to Ken just to wrap us up and maybe give a couple of last words of reflection. And as he's doing that, I'll share my screen to show you at least how Ken has been adding thoughts into the mural that uh, we we've been using.
0: Well, thanks very much indeed, and uh, thanks to all of the panelists. I mean, I've really uh, really learned a huge amount uh, today. I work primarily these days in in rural Africa in terms of our own work and I'm I'm, to be honest I'm really jealous when I hear of all this uh, incredible dynamism going on in in uh, in East Asia and I think particularly these trends of consolidation the trends of farms getting bigger of, of market development are really really fascinating. I think reflecting on this point about, um, you know, who's getting left behind, and I think one of the things that comes out to me very much is the idea, if you like, of fair work, fair work for the labourers who would still be working in some of the larger farms uh, when these service industries are going to be developing and, and triggering, if you like, lots of other rural employment, that that would also be employment which gives people fair incomes and the like. When I was uh, uh, typing these sticky notes and I was making notes and then popping them in, what really struck me is that, to certainly to start off within the discussion on the first comments, so many of the comments were about institutions, about markets, inputs, outputs, linking farmers to markets and getting that whole um, environment within which farming takes place to to operate better. And, And that was really populated very strongly. And then later on in the discussion, We started moving then to think more about about policies, and the bottom right-hand corner of of this uh, thing of sticky notes now has has got quite a few points there. Just to reinforce to everybody that that this is part of an ongoing dialogue, we've got another uh, set of uh, regional sessions coming up. Um, South Asia next, then Latin America, Africa, and then a Roundup session. And Jim and I are committed to actually pulling all of this together and and sharing it back with you. So on our websites, we'll have summaries of the discussions today. People can watch back uh, the webinar for today. And then we're moving on in in November to uh, sessions on pathways. And then finally on policies at a more global level. And this will all feed into the uh, IFAD Rural Development Report for... Uh, 2021, which we're currently uh, involved in, in writing. So, be, on behalf of uh, the thematic network on sustainable agriculture and food systems, on foresight for food, IFAD, APRA, thanks uh, for joining us. Thanks to all of our panelists and to you for attending. If you have any other questions, please contact us uh, through the uh, websites. Thanks very much. And at that point, I think it's time to Wish you a a great rest of your day and uh, thanks to everybody for your input.